This is episode four with Xiao Wang, the CEO and founder of Boundless. Welcome to Asian Tech Leaders. My name is Justin Peng, and each week we share insights from Asian tech leaders to help inspire and guide you to reach your full potential. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get started. Xiao Wang is a co-founder and CEO of Boundless, a company that helps families navigate the complex legal immigration system. Prior to Boundless, he held leadership roles at Amazon, Providence Equity, New York City Department of Education, and McKinsey. Xiao holds degrees from Stanford University and an MBA from Harvard Business School. In this episode, Xiao talks about his upbringing as a Chinese immigrant in a Seattle suburb, how training for an Ironman helps him run a better company, and the advice that he has for his younger self. Hope you guys enjoy this episode, and let's get started. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining me on Asian Tech Leaders. We're here with Xiao Wang, who is the co-founder and CEO of Boundless. Hi, Xiao. How are you doing? Hey, Justin. Great. Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining. Um, so really excited about our conversation, but as a fellow runner, wanted to start on the topic of you doing endurance sports, because I, I noticed that you've done several marathons at very impressive pace, um, and you've also done several Ironman. So uh, can you just share a little bit more about um, how you're able to, if at all, weave in running and triathlete training while you're running a big company? <laughs> um, thank you. And, and I'm flattered that you uh, consider Boundless a big company, but we'll, we'll get there in a second. <laughs> I think it, it comes down to priorities and it comes down to like where you come, uh, uh, where, where you are able to do your best thinking and step away from the day to day. And for me, my team is often very nervous when I come back from a run because uh, I will have a whole list of ideas that have come up in my mind. But really, I think, you know, the, the running piece and the endurance athlete piece is a, um, I would say that it is a variant of my history that has actually guided me through a lot and in, uh, a lot of what I've, a lot of the decisions I've been uh, been thinking through, and also like why it is that I do what I do. So, when I was growing up, yeah, I was that traditional Asian student, right? I did math club, I did science team, I did piano uh, and band and all of these other standard activities. Uh, but I really love to play sports. And the only unfortunate part was that I was terrible at playing sports. And I was you know, short, I was very light. Um, and I had the wrong genes, unfortunately. Uh, sorry, mom and dad. And so I, I was yeah, I was cut from the, the baseball team um, for being too weak. I was cut from the soccer team for being too slow. Uh, I was, I ran track in, in junior high and uh, I did the, the 1600 meters, which is four laps around the track. And I was getting lapped by my last uh, lap, which means that people were finishing the race with me having one more cycle around the track to go. And so I got most applause out of everyone, but that's because they were waiting for me to finish and for the rest of the meet to happen. And so 
it was it, it was a repeated thing in, in my life, even through college, where I was cut from the ultimate frisbee team, which um, a lot of people don't even think of this as a sport uh, for all four years that I, I was in in college. And so it, it this was it wasn't until I I discovered you know long distance running or just endurance sports that I found um, a niche that didn't reward talent, <laughs> which I was sorely lacking, as much as just sheer resolute tolerance of pain. And <laughs> since I was gifted at that, um, I actually slowly got better. And um, to the point where uh, I was, my, my first half marathon I did, uh, I, I was high, uh, it was around one hour and 45 minutes. And then I, was so inspired. I was living in New York at the time. I watched the New York City Marathon. I'm inspired by that to to start training for a marathon, uh, and eventually triathlon to a point where I eventually became I would call like reasonably competitive, um, where I was getting sponsored with, you know, gear, not money or food, um, and and I was you know, regularly placing or winning, um, winning races. And part of that is that it, it, it's interesting because the amount of time I spent on getting good at endurance sports is, is really not that conducive to the rest of my life. Like there's a peak that people go through where you like, if you go from no working out to some working out, your, your, your health is better, your mind is better, et cetera. Um, and then at some point it, it, it just goes down from there. Um, but what it was really trying to um, do for me and what it enabled me to do is like, I looked around and there were no other Asian people around where I was running. Mm. Uh, and especially in New York City when I was was doing this, a lot of the volunteers at the aid stations were actually students at the local high schools of which many of whom were Asian. And I, I would get regular comments about how, wow, it's a first Asian guy. <laughs> hey, look, there's an Asian guy. And there's something about being able to succeed at something that you're not expected to succeed at that has been a important and core part of my identity as I strive to do other things, especially in the professional world, where traditionally you were less expected to succeed at. So I know this was a very long way of, of answering your, your tea up an, uh, question, but for me, like the, the, as endurance sports became a more and more a part of my identity and what people knew me for, it reaffirmed the notion that I could be successful and set myself out to doing anything that I wanted to, whether or not it was what I was supposed to do. Mm, that's amazing. And I totally hear you on like the diminishing marginal returns of every hour or extra mile you run. After a certain point, it gets really tough. Um, so are you still able to train for, for some of these um, Ironman races or marathons, or have you also kind of tapered that back as your business is starting to to take more priority? Um, unfortunately, I, I definitely can't train uh, the way that I would like to train, um, given the competing priorities, and not only like starting and running a company, but also trying to be, you know, a good partner uh, to my spouse and you know, and to yeah. other people in my life. Um, currently, I. Uh, it, 
I, I'm currently uh, recovering from a broken arm that I suffered while skiing. So there's uh, there's still a lot uh, <laughs> of activities you could do, but um, it's still an important part of my life. Just yeah. uh, I won't PR again for a few years at least. Right, right. And I think you know one of the the questions I have as a follow up is the mindset of an athlete, specifically an endurance athlete, is is quite unique. Um, what are one or two lessons or skills that you have translated from your training for Ironman races or marathons that you actually bring over to other parts of your personal life or running your own company? So the first one is about optimization. And in order to do endurance sports well, it often comes down to a numbers game. And no one, presuming unless you're a professional athlete, has enough time or energy to do all the things that you're supposed to do. And so it's, it's, it's about how you frame the time that you have. Um, and there are times where there's specific workouts where I know like, hey, I just need to get through this. This is not gonna be fun or enjoyable. And this is only a means to an end. Whereas there's other times that it's important to say, you know, I, I remember why I did this, which is like, hey, running by the water during the sunset is like really delightful. And I get to spend time and I can go for a run with my wife or with my dog and, and like things are, um, you know, enjoyable. And it's being able to, to be clear to myself about why I'm doing uh, each, why I'm in each of these buckets. And so there, and, and that has, been relevant to, to my professional life as well, because there are times where you just have to do something to get through it. And if you're trying to find meaning and, and, and purpose and, and joy in every single thing that you do every day, I think all of us will be very disappointed. Whereas, whereas there's other times where uh, the, the pleasure from the process and like what you're trying to go through is really important. And, and so being able to understand which, which area that you're from will save a lot of frustration and heartache and also mentioned, like get you to there sooner. Mm -hmm. um, and the other part is around taking breaks one of the biggest challenges to people progressing well in endurance sports is injury. In fact, there are the recent studies, there's like 70% of runners get injured every year. Um, and the number I'm presuming is even higher for triathletes. <clears throat> and that's because you get excited and you think that more is more um, in, in everything. And it's actually very, important to take breaks or to switch things up or to try other things or, and, and know that that's okay because you are planning for um, a longer period of growth as opposed to a short period of growth. Uh, you know, the, one of the best alpine runners in the world, uh, Killian Jornet, doesn't run during a quarter of the year right? because if you ran around a whole year, like would most likely be injured and and also potentially we get burned out or or be you know unhappy with the with with the choices that he made. So he takes off the winter to go skiing. Um, and he's very good at that as well. But like the, the point is 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 around knowing 
about when to push and knowing when to 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 draw back. Mm. Yeah, it's a great point, and I think you know it reminds me of this equation: stress plus rest equals growth. And so often in in this high intensity achievement driven world, I feel like we focus on the stress of like the stimuli. I want to get stuff done. Uh, but it's a great point. We sometimes need to step back and realize to grow. We need to to take a take a pause sometimes. And then and then I think it's actually the variance that that matters. Mm-hmm. So for training, you know, I see when I when I coach people, um, I do see a lot of people that that run relatively fast all the time, for example, right? And that isn't as productive to growth, and it actually leads to higher injury. Whereas the better route is to spend most of your time running pretty slow, but then when you really need to run fast, run really fast. And it's those combinations of being able to reach that higher high and being able to come down to uh, recovery that that yields the most sort of sustainable growth from uh, an endurance athlete's perspective. But, you know, also it, at work, like I, I'm constantly amazed at what people are able to achieve uh, that they didn't know they could achieve. Right, by setting the right North Star and right objective and get it, clearing things out of their way, people are, are, are capable of very incredible things. And so it's being able to, at the, the times that matter, uh, to be able to lift yourself up is something that is, is really amazing to see. Mm, that's great, yeah, just seeing the, the limits of the human potential. Um, that's awesome. So if you don't mind, let's, let's switch gears to a little bit more of your earlier life. Um, in doing research, I saw that you, you came over from Shanghai to the States when you're around three years old. Um, and you spent most of your formative years in a suburb outside of Seattle. Um, if you don't mind, talk a little bit more about what it was like growing up in a small suburb outside of Seattle, wearing fleece and tevas, as I read <laughs> you did. And um, what, what was kind of like your relationship with your identity as an Asian growing up in <clears throat> the States? I mean, I would, <laughs> I would like to joke to my friends that uh, I grew up as a angsty white teenager. Right? In a, <laughs> uh, all of my friends were white and they were all like long-term Americans. Uh, my, my, mother uh, and, and father, when they picked where we lived, their only criteria was the quality of the schools. Mm. Right? And it nothing to do with the community, nothing to do with anything else. It's like, look, we just want to put you in a place where you can go to the best public schools. And so because of that, uh, there was very limited diversity in my environment uh, of, of where I grew up. And so it's been something that has taken a long time, I think, uh, for me to reconcile between everything, where like the question is clearly outwards, I look Chinese. And the question really is, hey, where, uh, who am I? Am I American? Uh, am I Asian? Am I Chinese? Like, And a lot of times growing up, I felt like I was neither. And that creates some challenges from an identity perspective where I didn't feel Chinese enough to matter. I spoke Chinese, right? I eat Chinese food. However, when I meet or spend time with the people who came over at a much, much uh, older age, 
like we have very different perspectives and values. And then interesting enough, even from an Asian perspective, when I meet the people who have truly embraced their Asian heritage, like in my high, uh, in my teenage years, it were the people who were driving you know, Civics with really large mufflers, and um, I couldn't, I couldn't bond with them either because I didn't have any exposure to them while I, I was was growing up. I had no friends that were like that. Um, and on the other end, right, like I was never the, I could never aspire to be or achieve the standard cool popular kid in a large suburban high school uh american motif because i was on the math team and you know and and you know did like all sorts of interesting competitions and other things on the side and so that is is that it took a while before i realized and became comfortable with the fact that i could be both that i could you know hold on to the pieces of my asian identity that i feel like are important and I can add on to it the you know the abundance and optimism and uh and and I'll I you know the cockiness that like a lot of Americans exhibit and not have to decide between one or the other so now it like it at, at some point when I realize that like both are okay and that it, and and I don't have to decide. Um, I'm now far more comfortable with you know who I am and the aspects that make up me and like where what I do and how I make decisions moving forward. Mm. And did that reconciliation happen earlier in your life, like in your youth, or is that something that's kind of been realized more recently as an adult? I would say later on. Um, in later on parts of college uh, and and early professional career. Mm. Uh, because I think it's only when college when I got to meet other people that were kind of like me. Uh, and then later on in the career, I would actually be able to see people at different functions who were, you know, who had, who were like me, but older. And right. I think the combination of those two made me realize that, hey, like, this is a viable path. And actually, I like those people. Yeah. That's great. Who I could become one day. Hmm. And talk a little bit more about your career journey and education choices early on. Did you have a very clear sense of what you wanted to, to study in college and uh, what type of profession you wanted to pursue? Or was it much more organic um, than planned out? It's funny because when when you look back on my career, you could draw a pretty clear line like, oh, yeah, like these steps make sense. While you're actually living it, nothing made sense. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll start with you know, what I went into college. I went into college thinking I was a, um, you know, I was th thinking that I was going to be a rock star like engineer. Like literally, uh, and so instead of doing, you know, the normal core class, I went and took the hardest, most accelerated and compressed one year of computer science in one quarter uh, class at Stanford. And within about three weeks, I realized that there were going to be people who are always going to be just orders of magnitude better than I was. Like that, that it wasn't even close. And that was a really, you know, 
the the combination of my cockiness going in and the humbleness that I received very quickly uh, was a great wake up call for me uh, in terms of oh yeah like yeah coming out of high school especially like thinking that I had everything figured out. Um, so eventually, you know, the, the areas that I stumbled into were, were things that I literally stumbled into. I, uh, the two, two parts that I found the most joy out of college were, you know, when I started working with the design school, so the D school, is, uh, which is something new that we came up with with, uh, with IDEO um, and around design thinking. And I got to work on interdisciplinary projects with real life organizations, um, <clears throat> which, um, and then, you know, my major, which is economics, which is, you know, this, the, the, the result of one incredible lecture that was the first person who could get me to go to a 9 a.m. class every single day and, 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 and love it and be inspired every day. Uh, and, and, you know, with the combination of, of those two things, you know, I came out really looking at uh, still like a variety of choices. And because I didn't know what I wanted to do, I actually did, I would call the relatively safe route by joining a management consulting firm, uh, which is one way of pushing decisions later on in life, uh, which is, I think a perfectly fair option, right? So, you know, when there are, there are friends of mine, especially now who are, who are doctors and finally like, you know, at the pinnacle of their profession, and they knew they wanted to be a doctor since they were probably in high school, right? And they're doing experiments on, on, on in the lab and on mice and like, you know, going through this and you, there's one thing that they, 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 they wanted to do. And that's awesome. And if you have that, I, you are so incredibly lucky. Hold on to that fire and, and, and get as much joy as you can out of it. Um, I was not like that. <laughs> and so, uh, and when you're not like that, it is, uh, what what I what I like to think is that like at some point, I will find something that I would you know really want to do, and I want to be ready for that opportunity when it comes. And so if you if then you frame it as like what are the skills and what are the um, elements that I want to pick up while I do this, uh, like that is a perfectly fine optimization function. And so for me, it was to do management consulting for a couple of years to pick up skills around, hey, how do I look at problems? How do I uh, break down really hard, ambiguous situations into you know, tactical things that I can then uh, implement? And how do I think about, uh, <clears throat> you know, how do I think about data and, and insights that data can, 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 um, can provide in new ways? Um, but then, as with all things in life, um, you often take, you, you be okay with taking detours. So in my case, my uh, girlfriend at the time, now wife, did Teach for America uh, in the South Bronx. And I went to her schools and I've been hearing her stories all year, you know, around students getting pregnant uh, at, at age 13 or like, you know, all of the uh, lunches that are basically cans of Coke and Fritos and all of these different challenges they're struggling with. And I felt compelled to about, like doing something about it, um, which led me to the Department of Education, where I was trying to launch new schools that that you know, hopefully would would improve the lives of these students. Um, and so that was this case of me saying yes, like hey, like there is something like 
there's something really interesting here. Let me talk to some some people who are trying to solve problems. And I had an, an incredible opportunity to to lead a new team to to tackle this. And it's like, sure. Like that was never part of my plans to be a government employee, but um, it taught me a lot about hey, how do I, you know, how do I try to move the needle on intransient problems? And then my next opportunity is another example of me saying yes, which is uh, the political landscape in New York City shifted dramatically and the priorities shifted dramatically. Uh, and so I was, uh, the, the, there was a lot more obstacles to being able to achieve what I wanted to do. And someone else who I previously had worked for said, hey, I know this person is starting an organization at this private equity firm. He is the best manager I've ever had. You could learn a lot from him. And again, this is like, I've never been in finance. Yeah, um, and I never envisioned that I would be in finance, uh, but the chance to learn from a phenomenal manager is something that yeah, it's, it's, doesn't actually happen as often, nearly as often as it should. Um, and so I took that leap and got to, you know, really start to think about how do we guide companies and organizations at a strategic level, right? It's not just about having the right answer. The right answer is fine, but how do you actually implement that right answer? And that took me to like going deep into companies in, in Connecticut and in Utah and other places around, like really getting to know people and understanding conflicts and, and you know, understanding and trying to figure out how do you motivate um, people from all different types of backgrounds. Um, and so, yeah, like the idea is that it, it, like each time it's like, okay, this was yeah, not preordained or preplanned. I've never thought like, okay, what, where do I want to be in five years or where do I want to be in 10 years? But it's about like seeing, you know, what you're interested in, seeing where are interesting opportunities and saying yes to like great things that come along. Mm. That's great. That's great advice, especially for a lot of us who are still searching and might not have that obvious calling, which um, some some other people might have. Um, could you also talk really quickly before we get uh, deeper into Boundless and, and the awesome work you're doing there, um, the decision to leave kind of the, the corporate world, where you're previously working at Amazon and working on um, their cashierless stores, which sounds like a really interesting uh, project and type of work to, to focus on. You made the decision to work for yourself, start your own company, and leave some of the comforts of corporate life. How easy or di difficult was that decision for you at the time? <clears throat> Excuse me. So I think that there's a movement today, uh, especially in the Silicon Valley, around entrepreneurship being a good thing to do or like something you aspire to, or a goal of itself. And in my opinion, like, and having done this, like entrepreneurship is really, really hard. Like this is the hardest thing I've ever done. Like I am a, as I mentioned earlier, I don't run or bike or swim as much as I would like to. I'm a worse husband than I would like to. I you know, don't talk to my friends. I don't talk to my family. I like lose, a ton of like the hobbies that you know I've derived joy in. This is really hard, and not and and you, instead of it being this like glamorous thing, it really it's it only becomes worth it to go through this 
this challenge if it's something that you can't not do. Like it's something that you're absolutely so compelled that, and you have tried looking for any other way to solve this problem, and there's no other way existing that solves this problem, and you're forced to start a company. And so that's, once you're there, then the decision becomes easier. And so that's what happened with, with uh, my transition to, to starting Boundless is, you know, I was at Amazon. We just launched Amazon Go, which is you know, really great if you get a chance to go check it out in, in a number of different cities. Um, and I had you know, always known that immigration was a problem, but I never asked why. And that's something that I still I'm a little bit ashamed of whenever I talk about starting Boundless is that like this should have been something that was in my mind for a long time. but. <clears throat> About two and a half years ago, uh, I actually asked why for the first time. And so I interviewed hundreds of families and lawyers and governments and policy experts and realized that this is actually an information problem. Like the, the fundamental reason why immigration is so challenging and everyone's terrified is that because this is such a high stakes process that no one has any clue if they're doing it right. Um, Actually, there's one group of people that do have a clue, which is immigration lawyers, which is now, like now there are 10 times as many immigration lawyers as there were when I came over to the country and their fees have gotten higher. And so net is, is that there's this like incredible situation where millions of people are just terrified all of the time because of the lack of information. And as someone who you know works at Google, uh, I'm sure you understand like, the lack of information in 2019 is just unacceptable, right? Like this is exactly what technology and data is meant to do. And so the more that I learned about this problem, and the more that I realized hey, what the answer was and how it's like there, like that's when it became all I could think about, right? In the evenings, on weekends, so like during my day, like it was all I could think about is, hey, this is an incredible problem, and I am just stunned that there is no solution yet, um, which then made leaving all of my unvested shares that have now you know, quadrupled, not that anyone's tracking, uh, on the table uh, uh, you know, palatable. It's like th this had to happen. And so this is that, you know, if there's one, uh, th th there'll be two like areas that I uh, tend to soapbox on. But the first one is, that like entrepreneurship should never be the goal, right? It should be the path that you choose to solve an incredibly large and meaningful problem that you can't find a better way to solve. Yeah, so it shouldn't be the, the ends by itself. It should be the means to an end, which is hopefully rooted in a larger mission and cause that um, does not currently have a solution or as good as a solution as you'd like to see. Because right. yeah. I, I, I mean, the issue is, especially in, in today's media and, and everything, like everyone only talks about the good things, right? Only talks about the successes or the spectacular failures. But then, you know, you're, there's almost like a little glamour in, in you know, how, how ridiculous those situations are. Right? And so whenever you talk to anyone who runs a company, they're almost like, fiduciarily obligated to say, oh yeah, we're just killing it, right? Like every month is better than the last, every year is better than the last, this is like fantastic, it's incredible. And, and you know, that is probably 
you know, a, a critical part of my job description. And I can say the same thing about Boundless. I can talk to you all about all the great things that we're doing, our approval rates, like all the thousands of families are helping and so forth. And then, but what, what people don't say really publicly are like all the, like the things that don't go well, right? All the nights that you just can't sleep, all the times where you like, you know, you forget things uh, you know, that are unexcusable, like, you know, your spouse's birthday or other things where you're just like so preoccupied in your like own selfish world. And then, you know, all the issues are like, you basically combine all of the negative problems from everyone else on the team and you, you know, you sort of get to internalize everything. Um, and, <clears throat> and so that's why I'm saying is that like, it is, it, you know, it is really hard, uh, especially when you get older and you, you know, uh, uh, you have other responsibilities in life or other people who are important to you. Um, and so again, as that comes down to like, it's only worth it if, even if you go purely utilitarian, like there's a point where it's worth it and worth it if like, you know, you doing this can move the needle enough on like humanity or like that, that it's worth all these potential things that you might be giving up. Mm -hmm. And can you share a little bit more about the progress that Boundless has made? I know um, there are hundreds and thousands of unique visitors that visit the site each month for resources and, and help with the immigration and green card process. Um, any other metrics that you could share on, on like the progress that you've made towards a bigger goal? Yeah, so we, um, you know, we started with one product, which is marriage green cards, which is your US citizen or a green card holder, you can fall in love with someone who's not, um, uh, Canadians are very common recipients of these uh, and, and want to give them a green card. Uh, we have now since also released naturalization, which is like helping people with uh, green cards in the U.S. become citizens. What, yeah, the, there's the there's the top line stuff, which I'm really proud of, which is like, yeah, we have 100% approval rate so far. We've like, and we've helped thousands of families get you know, through this complex process. Um, what I also love is the fact that since we now process more of our first product, marriage green cards than anyone else, and we have the resources to do so as a technology startup is that we actually have all this data that no one else has had. So part of this fear around the immigration process is that you mail in your application and it's just a black box. Uh, and so we've started doing things to shed more transparency into this process. So for example, we published a report that's talking about how, um, how wait times vary significantly from zip code to zip code or geography to geography, how uh, approval rates and backlogs and denials also have huge amounts of variance across like areas are seemingly very close together, uh, which again, like helps people better understand, one, bet, make better decisions with their life, but also start this process of trying to understand like how this, how this entire ecosystem works. You know, we also use our data to, um, you know, to, to weigh in on different proposed policies where we know how much extra paperwork and extra time and effort some changes will push upon the shoulders of immigrants, or we know how much uh, how much additional like uh, constraints different proposed policies would make just because we have all of this information about our family's backgrounds um, that we can take a national stand on like 
that certain policies are bad for business, like whether uh, or certain policies are bad for like different groups of people for this amounts uh, and, and for clear amounts of money, um, which is a perspective that uh, has never been presented before, which is like the the pragmatic approach to, you know, why certain why immigration is good. Um, and then, you know, I, I think where we are excited to, 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 to get to is that, like, I don't think anyone has ever had a positive, any type of adjective or emotion that they've ever felt about the immigration process. And we have a chance here to take this journey that hasn't fundamentally changed in generations and actually you know, make people feel good and confident and taken care of, uh, which is something that you know, delights us every day as an organization when we get the testimonials and we get the feedback back from our customers. So it's really exciting. Like, so, you know, we, we've set out the groundworks and now we are ready to, you know, continue to roll out, you know, more and more products and services for people so we can help, you know, everyone feel finally good about their, their immigration journey. Great. That's amazing to hear, especially um, as a Canadian who lived in the States for a while, um, getting my work permit was always a nerve wracking experience. So it's great to see Boundless attack that problem. And I think specifically in this political climate too, giving people more peace of mind and comfort with um, their ability for themselves and their families to create a new home and, and life in the States is such an awesome mission. So congratulations on the progress so far. Thank you, it's still early. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and also heard that you recently closed a new round of funding, which is positive news. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for, for those who uh, are involved in venture back startups, just means the treadmill gets a little faster. But uh, it, it's really exciting. We brought on that great new um, investor and partner in Brad Feld and Foundry Group. Um, if any of you are interested in starting companies or are interested in venture space, uh, you should read his books. Um, he has phenomenal books that basically uh, he was getting tired of entrepreneurs getting taken advantage of because they didn't know what was going on. And so he decided to actually write a book that explained everything that's going on. Um, and it turned into a whole series of books, both about, you know, the, the specifics of entrepreneurship, specifics of starting like a company, uh, managing a board, and also he wrote a great book with his wife about how do you um, have a successful relationship while being with an entrepreneur, um, and and like I think they you know being able to to share that wisdom with people is is uh, not only fantastic but a little testament of the type of 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 uh, board member and, and advisor he is. That's great, and I'll, I'll add links to the uh, books in the show notes for listeners who want to check out Brad's books. Um, and we're almost at time, but just two more wrap up questions. And feel free to just answer this in, in short one sentence if you want, or you can um, talk a little bit more as well. Um, but how would you advise someone on how to find their passion? You've obviously had your journey and it seems like Boundless is kind of um, a very strong mission-driven oriented company that resonates with you. How would you, advise somebody earlier in their life or career to, to navigate that and figure out what they want to do. Can I have a couple of sentences? Of course. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the short one, the short answer is, uh, as I mentioned, is just say yes to things. I think we're so nervous about whenever we're 
like facing different choices that somehow this this is like going to be the most critical decision of my life and i uh oh, i do a or b and often that yeah um and oftentimes it's just like yeah like just say yes to things and who knows where things will take you and and they'll be uh and it's those experiences that are sort of unexpected that 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 um that help you grow the most the longer answer is this idea around purpose um have you have you read some of the research around this um i've read books like start with why by simon sinek and just like having a strong purpose and true north to your life um helps with so many aspects of uh, mental health and and just happiness in the long term yeah um and so the, so there's this growing like field of research around purpose um and i love the the origin uh, story of this which is that the psychologist did a study of nights janitors at a hospital. So these are the people who basically spend every night cleaning out bedpans and mopping the floors and sanitizing the, the desks and doing all of the grunt work so that the hospital stays clean. And they interviewed um, like these, these things and they found that they actually have three categories of purpose for each of the, like uh, of, of why that they, what they're doing. And so the first is that it's a job. And it's literally like, hey, this pays the bills. I get uh, you know, a roof over my head. I can feed my family. You know, It's a low skill work. There's not much movement for advancement, but I'm just doing it as a job. The second group consider what they're doing um, career, their purpose of career. I see that someone who used to do my job is now the, the manager, someone who is now doing uh, facilities work. And so if I work really hard at this, I too can rise the ranks. And, and you know, how, what, what my title is and how far I've been promoted is uh, reflective of who I am. And then the third is they call it the calling group. And so people that like that, that that their work is a reflection of them, not the, and 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 that they view themselves as a member of the care team. And there's this one woman who like was in the coma wing, uh, where all the people are in the coma, and she would change the the pictures on the wall every week because she's like, I don't know what's going to get them to wake up, but maybe this extra little bit of stimulation would. And it's like people who view themselves as healers and ambassadors at the hospital. Literally, they're all doing the same job. They all have the same job title, and they split about one third, one third, one third. And I say what, what, what gets me really fascinated about this is that this applies no matter where you are and what you're doing. Right? You can view what you're doing as a job, you can view what you're doing as a career, or you can view what you're doing as a calling. And the farther up this, think of Maslow's hierarchy, the farther up this pyramid you go, the more you actually can get out of it and the more that it can actually guide you to like where you want to be or what you want to do. And so this is something that like, I think all of us can do no matter what situation we are in is like think about what is it that I'm doing um, and why, and um, and if we can you know, find more purpose in our work, that will teach us more about ourselves and lead us to like places where we want to go. Mm, that's amazing. I think that's such a great ending point here. But thanks so much, Xiao, for the time, the words of wisdom, sharing about your journey. Um, it was really inspiring for me, and I'm sure I'll be inspiring for our listeners. For anybody who wants to follow along with uh, what you're up to with Boundless, what's the best place for folks to find you on the internet? You can find me on uh, LinkedIn uh, or Twitter. Um, and then our you can always come to our website. We have uh, a, a blog that we post sort of 
and taking what is happening out of Washington, which is uh, a lot these days, uh, and taking the most salient points and making it understandable by by everyone. Great. Thanks so much, Xiao. Uh, appreciate the time. Thank you, Jess. Take care. Take care. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. Please share this with your friends and follow us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Looking forward to our next conversation. And until then, take care.